would just pray with me. Father, we are grateful that we are able to come here today. Just pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truths here. That we would know that you are God, that you reign over all, that you're accomplishing your plan through your church, and we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, We're going to look at the first 13 verses of Revelation chapter 11 today. I'd plan on doing the whole chapter, but after kind of getting into it and through it, I came to understand that that's probably the best thing to kind of break this up this morning. And so, we, like I said, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Um, As we started, just kind of a quick review, the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to the church to help them persevere to the end through the trials that they were experiencing in the present and the trials that they would face in the future and to remind them of their hope that was to come in Christ. And we um, are so delighted that we're able to study this. Uh, It is one of those things where the church needs to know that they're on the winning side. Sometimes it does not look like that. Uh, For the first century, they were a small band of people. And they were moving through this life, facing horrific things. And in the midst of that, God is reminding them that Jesus uh, came, that he died, that he rose again from the grave, and that he ascended into heaven, and that he reigns over all, and that he will return, and that he will judge all of his enemies, and that he will save his people. He also told them before he left that he would uh, leave them in a world where they would have trouble. That if he was persecuted, so they would be persecuted. But as he died and rose again, so they would rise again. So there was nothing for them to ultimately fear. Uh, Art Azurdia calls this passage in chapter 11 verses 1 through 13 something that I'll refer to as we move through, but very helpful, I thought. He calls it the career of the church in four uh, short video clips. And so I think that's helpful for us uh, as we're thinking through this. The first clip, he says, is verse 1 and 2, her spiritual protection. The second clip, verses 3 through 6, are her invincible witness. The third clip, verses 7 through 10, her satanic persecution, and the fourth clip, verses 11 through 13, her final reward. This is the pathway to reward. That is one of the things that you will see that the church does throughout the ages. They follow their Lord. They follow Him. They follow Him in His suffering. They follow Him in His exaltation. They are walking with their Lord. They are followers of Jesus Christ. In the early church, the church was, they were called Christians because they identified with Jesus. Their lives lived, really followed in the way of his life. They would ultimately die. Many of them would die for the faith, but they would come out on the other side. Another way that he said this was, it it was really stuck with me. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means being a witness to Jesus Christ. Being a witness to Jesus Christ will in some way or some sense mean being a martyr for Jesus Christ. 
And being a martyr for Jesus Christ also means being a victor of Jesus Christ. So it is very important, I think, for us to understand that. Because this morning, as you are living in this present age, you are a witness. If you are a Christian, you are a witness of Christ. The question maybe to consider this morning is, are you a good witness? Are you faithfully seeking to witness to Jesus Christ? Do you seek to make him known? If someone were to ask you, why are you here? Why do you live here? Why are you dwelling on this earth? Why did God leave us here? It's primarily for witness. And I think for us, sometimes we forget that. I forget that. I struggle with that. I'll, I'll kind of go through times and I'll experience things and I'll think, I'll just be moving along through life and forget. And if it weren't for Sunday morning, I might forget. That's my role as witness. We are proclaiming this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus said that to his disciples, and you will be my witness. Now, another thing I think that's important, when even when you're sitting there wondering, what am I going to do in my future? Sometimes we'll ask, I just don't know what God has for me in the future. One thing you can know he does have is for you to be a witness wherever he's placed you. That is what he's called us to. Now, why do we struggle with this commission? Why do you get, sometimes go, I, you know, I really don't want to do that or I don't really, that seems like a lot of work. That seems like a lot of a need for intensity. That seems costly. Sometimes I think we fear losing something. Sometimes it's a loss of relationships that are dear to us. Sometimes it's a loss of financial security. For some, it's a fear of the loss of their lives. But most of us don't fear that. We don't think, oh, I'm going to lose my life. Living here, we feel somewhat comfortable. But we kind of saw, we saw this very, I would say, clearly in First Peter. It was not the loss of life. It was the greatest fear for them even, I don't think, in First Peter. It was the law, losing out on life. Losing out on life in this present age. And that's difficult for us because we fear losing our dignity, our status, our reputation. All those types of things we kind of can start fearing that we're going to lose out on. And I think it's important that we this morning stop and consider... What is, the, what, what is the call of the church? What's the purpose of the church in this present age? And we see in the Great Commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, you think that, you're thinking about that this morning, and then we're going to walk through what, he, again, he calls, um, really, the, the, in the church, you could say it's the career of the church. So, we're going to look at clip one in verses one and two, and we'll move Uh, through it uh, step by step verse one and two then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there but do not measure the court outside the temple leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months so I see this first clip as spiritual protection some people think this is a reference to a literal temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Uh, For some, that would mean that 
that they, they were kind of thinking about uh, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70 for others that would live today believing that. They would believe that a literal temple will be rebuilt sometime in the future. Uh, there are many who believe that the Jews are now and, and likely some are storing up the things to rebuild a temple uh, and, and really, uh, you know, kind of one of those things where they'd have to go in, uh, you know, do away with the Dome of the Rock, set up the temple, institute the sacrifices, find priests, put all that together. And some people would hold to that, that that is what is going to take place. And I don't. And so this morning, I'm going to present to you what I believe this is, what I believe it's talking about. Even if you don't agree, which is okay, like I'm not going to freak out and be like, oh, why don't you agree with me? It's not, I don't, not do that. If you don't agree, I think you can still come away with some spiritual principles. I really do. And I think you need to think in that way. Like whether you agree or don't agree, you're trying to come away with understanding uh, what is God presenting here? And how does, that, how does that change the way I live today? And so I think that will be um, helpful for you as you move through it. Now, the Old Testament writers, like Ezekiel, if you were to study it, in chapters 40 through 48, he spoke of a new temple. And when he spoke of that temple, most people would, it depend on where you are, some would say, again, it's a literal temple. Some would say, no, probably not a literal temple. It's speaking of something even different than that. So I'm of that opinion that he is not speaking of it uh, primarily, you know, or in any way as a literal temple, but rather something of what is to come with his people. And, and we'll talk about that. Uh, one of the ways I think we need to understand that is when we read the New Testament, we read it, when we read the New Testament, we have to allow the New Testament to interpret the Old I believe God in his revelation progressively reveals his plan. And as he reveals his plan, the promises he makes are, as the New Testament moves forward, greater than what you see in the Old Testament. What most of us would say is you have all these types in these promises made and all these types and shadows of the truth that's going to come. And it is far greater than we ever imagined. And so we're going to kind of work through that and think through that as you move forward. Now, one of the things that helps me when I'm reading this, and actually another thing that John wrote, is in the Gospel of John, John says about Jesus that he became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is temple imagery. God dwelt among us. Jesus came. He was the embodiment of God. He he came down and he was dwelling with us. What was the purpose of the temple? The temple was God dwelling with his people. And so Jesus comes and he's presented in that way. You keep moving forward and Jesus says in the gospel of John, uh, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And guess what the people said? It took 40 something years to build this temple. He's crazy. And John says... The temple was his body. Destroy this temple, the presence of God among you, and in three days I will raise it up. Fast forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church is speaking, spoken of as God's temple. 
And later in the Corinthians, he says that he that the church is the temple of the living God. In Ephesians 2, we are being built up into a temple. So I think Jesus is presented in the New Testament, which again interprets the old. He is presented in the New Testament as the true temple, the presence of God among us. And his church, being united to the true temple, becomes the new temple. We are being built up as this spiritual temple. We are living stones in the temple. God is building his temple right now. We are his people. And the presence of God is among us and in us. He is working with us. Fast forward in the New Testament. In the Revelation, we see the church presented as lampstands. Where do you find those lampstands? You find those in the temple. So he is presenting that, I believe, building a case throughout that this temple imagery is tied to the church being his temple. Another thing I think is just important to say about that is even at the very end, we see that there will be no temple. The lamb is there. There's no need for that. And I think it's important. We're also noticing here it speaks of in verse one and two. So you think about this temple and then you hear this thing of this holy city. Actually, in the end of the revelation here, you will see um, that this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. Who's that? It's the church. God is building his people. And these people are protected by him when he's marking them out. I think this reminds you of Revelation 7, where there's a pause in the whole story and you see the church sealed 12,000 times 12. They are sealed. It's going back to Old Testament imagery. And you see, he's saying they're marked out again. I think here he's saying, look, the church is it's it's marked out. It's showing God's ownership of it. He's keeping it. He's watching over it. He's protecting it. But also, I think we see the church presented again as this holy city living in a fallen world where they're being attacked. And so I think the picture here is this, that God is watching over his people. He is protecting them, but it does not mean that they're not going to experience trouble in the present. I've told you before, I think when we read apocalyptic literature, we do not read it like anything else in the Bible. When you read apocalyptic, you read it on its terms. And I think on its terms, you start in your mind when you're reading apocalyptic literature, you understand that these are signs and symbols presenting spiritual realities. And I'll say one other thing. I don't think that the teaching in this passage is anything different than what you see throughout the New Testament. And so it's very important that I think we understand that. Now, we keep moving forward, and, and it says it speaks of this 42 months or three and a half years. Some people will struggle with that. What are we talking about here? Well, one thing we see in, in, in the number seven throughout this book, the number seven is the number of completion. So this is not fully, this is not 
fully complete, you might say. It's been stopped. There's something of this that says this destruction that's coming or this trouble upon the church is not going to be completely annihilate the church. And so they are experiencing this trouble. It is there, but it's not complete annihilation. Another thing is this. uh, Some authors believe that when they heard this, 42 months, and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly, but they, they think that it would be something that would be assigned to the people of God in that time in the first century that would remind them of something. He's been reminding them of all these things that have happened, and one of those things would be that this would speak of a, a Jewish revolt that happened in, in 166 um, BC or 67, I can't remember. And what happened was there was this this time period that the Jews were under considerable trouble. There was all kinds of suffering going on and there was this revolt and it was stopped. And from that point on, actually the Jews still today uh, celebrate Hanukkah and it's a reminder of that great time of trouble that was stopped. And it would have been fresh in the minds of the people here and likely just a reminder that suffering will not happen, although it will not be completely destroyed. God is protecting his people. So I think verses 1 and 2 speak of God's protection. His spiritual protection, not necessarily physical, but his spiritual protection of the people. That's clip one. If you were describing to someone the trouble they were about to face, and you could stop them and say, but you're protected. That's what God's doing throughout the revelation. I've sealed you. You're protected. I'm watching over you. I own you. I'm keeping you. Second clip, verse 3 through 6, her invincible witness And I will grant authority to my witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. 42 months. You kind of see that same deal here. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, this is the essence of their mission. They are two witnesses. They are given the authority to prophesy. Uh, It's very important, I think, to see this. This is something granted to them by God. It's a divine commission. Go and prophesy. I believe that it refers to the time between the first and second coming. The idea here of a witness kind of takes you to a courtroom. And in a courtroom, you see that they're always, they'll call up their witnesses who will explain what took place. The church is the witness to the world to explain about Jesus. That's what they do. And so it is a testimony about Jesus. It's something I think is very important that you see. John used that idea already in chapter 1. He spoke of his, his, the testimony that was to be given. He was exiled. John was exiled under this kind of suffering at that moment because of, what had, because of his witness to the gospel. It's something we'll even see in 12, uh, 17. These people will hold to the testimony of Jesus. They are declaring those truths about Jesus. 
So being a follower of Jesus Christ is, is really is centered in being a witness for Jesus Christ. I read something this week, uh, or maybe I heard it, I don't remember, but it was the word martyr didn't initially mean someone dying. It had the idea of someone who was witnessing to. So it's important, I think, to understand that. And what we've seen so far is there in Revelation 6, there are people martyred for their witness because they are uh, close to Jesus Christ, identifying with Jesus Christ. So what, are they, what is the content of this witness? It's the gospel. They're proclaiming the gospel. They've been given this authority to prophesy, to speak of the gospel, the, the gift of eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why are these people who have this wonderful message wearing sackcloth? There's something about it that makes you think mourning, sorrow, suffering. Why sackcloth? I think the idea here, and I think it's important to understand that, is that there is a sobriety about Christianity. We are talking about things of like heaven and hell. We are talking about two destinies, two ways of living. There's really this idea in the Christian truths like that you kind of say there's an aspect of this that is the most wonderful message you've ever heard. There's an aspect of it that's the most frightening message you've ever heard. And for those who receive it, it is a great blessing. To those who reject it, it is a curse. And so this message, there's something very sober about it. And something that would cause you to, to say, hold on just a second. We'd better watch out at what we're doing here. And I, I was really, I was thinking about this week, you know, you, you see churches thinking like, hey, we want to be the coolest people in the community. You know, th- these people don't look too cool. And their message is a hard message. And the trouble they face is extreme. This is not just something where it's like, hey, let's show up and celebrate and have fun and happy. And let's get a guy to come speak to us that's really funny. And let's just have fun all the time. And let's just say, hey, you want your, your, your most exciting life? This is what you do. God wants to give that to you. And you're going to have so much fun. And it's going to be so enjoyable. And you cannot imagine how good your marriage is going to be. How good your kids are going to be. How great your bank account's going to look. All that stuff. That pattern is all over us. It is, it is infiltrating not just, and this is very important for us to understand, it's not just those people who are out there that you say, man, they seem like they're a little off. It is infiltrating the church all around the country. But these witnesses don't look like that. They, are, they have been called upon by God to speak a message, and as it's communicated, it is a message that comes that delivers either blessing to those who receive it or damnation to those who reject it. It is serious business. It is serious. It is something that is, it is so frightening to the world they want to silence it. Whatever gospel we share, if it is a gospel that makes people never feel offended, it's no gospel at all. It's not like I go around and say, I'm going to be a jerk to everyone I meet. But know this, when the gospel is truly presented, it hammers people. It crushes their idols. It calls them to align themselves with Jesus. Without which, if they fail to do so, it tells them they will be damned. So, 
when you're looking at this, I think it's important, like we kind of ask the question, who are these two witnesses? Some people believe that these are, after this temple's rebuilt, this is maybe Moses and Elijah resurrected, going out on, you know, and, and proclaiming a message. Again, I think this is speaking of the church. Proclaiming the message of the gospel. What you see, and I just will mention this one more time, if you allow John to speak to us, John has already called the church lampstands. Seven lampstands. And I think it's important to say, well, well, hold on just a second. Some might say, well, maybe it's now it's two. Does that mean the other five didn't make it or, you know, I don't think so. I think what is taking place here is he's speaking of them as witnesses throughout the Old Testament. Two witnesses verified something. And so I think it was really that that's kind of the idea here. The church as two witnesses here as verifying the thing that um, that they are proclaiming. And so you could say the seven lampstands spoke of the church as a whole, and the two lampstands here speak of the church as witness. That's how I see that. So we start out, church is protected. Go the next step, the church is a witness. And that's kind of what you see on display. Now, what about these olive trees? This reminds you, again, you've got to read the Old Testament to understand. But, the old, the, but in, the, in Zechariah, there's a place where there are two men, Joshua and Zerubbabel. One, a priestly figure. The other, a kingly figure. And these two, both kings and priests, again, if you've read the Revelation so far, who are spoken of as kings and priests? The church. These two people, these two witnesses are a prophetic uh, witness, in my mind, of the church. This is their mission, the Great Commission. Now, what is the source of their ability? How can they do this? One, we see they stand before the Lord of the earth. And another thing I think it's important, if you go back to Zechariah, where it's speaking of Joshua and Zerubbabel, guess what it says? Joshua and Zerubbabel, they will not do this by human might or human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. These people are empowered to do this work. So, start it out. God's going to protect his people. but They're going to be my witnesses. And they're going to go out into a world that is lost and dying in rebellion against God. And you'll see that in this picture. God is already, even, you'll see the judgments coming from these two. God is already kind of bringing about some of the judgment for those who have rejected Him. And you see this on display even here. So, first section, God's protecting. Second, they are His witnesses. Third, verses 7 through 10, you see the persecution. Satanic persecution here. You know, when you uh, read the Bible, again, the New Testament, thinking through all of what's taking place, Jesus said, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever's lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take courage, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I think what we see is the Christian life is costly. 
He says, whoever will follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There, there are consequences with this witness. There are things that they will face. There's trouble that will come. Now, what we see here in this section is that Jesus' disciples are called to witness and then we're going to move forward into they are going to be persecuted for that witness. Now, just think this with me real quick. When Jesus was a witness, the, the faithful witness, what happened to him? Happy, happy, happy? Is that how it ended? All is well for Jesus. He just went around and everybody loved him. Is that how his witness ended up? No. In the text we see, it became, at first you thought, oh, people are getting happy. But then at the end, those happy people who love Jesus and were clapping and saying, throw us some more bread, are screaming, crucify him. So his witness is one of him, him being the very presence of God among people and them standing up there saying, crucify him. The light came, they loved the darkness, and so they wanted to put out the light. Jesus, I believe, is presenting to his church here, you are my witnesses, and the road that I travel, you will also travel. And the victory that I have, you will also possess. And I think that's what we see in this text. If you go back and look at that particular idea, you will see in chapter 1, again, John is a, is a witness of Christ and he's exiled. In chapter 2, Antipas was killed as a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, Christians are slaughtered because of their faithful witness. In chapter 12, the great dragon makes war on his witnesses. In chapter 17, the harlot Babylon is drunk on Christians. In chapter 20, uh, Christians have been martyred. So, it's just important, I think, for us to get that and understanding that. Being a follower of Jesus Christ is being a witness for him. And when we are following him and witnessing for him, we will emulate him. And if he was slaughtered as a lamb, so will his people be. So, look at eleven seven through 13 now. Understanding the idea of persecution. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and, and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We see that the witness of the church is hated by the enemy. And the enemy of our souls. He's wanting to silence it. And the world wants it silenced. As they did with Jesus. So I think it's important that we understand that. And so what's happening here. This church has been given a commission. There is this time of tribulation. And then what we'll see is this kind of overwhelming picture of destruction here upon the church. Remember, the martyrs ask in chapter 6, How long? 
Lord, before you come and, and, and make things right? How long before you avenge our blood? And they're told, wait a little while until the time of the martyrs is complete. Now listen, if a witness and a martyr are somewhat synonymous here, you're saying until the witness of the church is complete. And when that is complete, then, then this enemy of the church will come and it will appear that he will completely destroy them. There's kind of a picture here. You'll see Egypt, which is not a city. And you see this sign of this picture of Jerusalem. And you're kind of looking at these things and you're saying, what is this great city? I think you have to say, just like in Jerusalem, Jesus was killed. And just like in Babylon, Babylon seeks to destroy. We'll see that later on in the Revelation. All the way through in Egypt, what did they do to the people of God? They persecuted them. And so there's all these persecutors mentioned. And you're seeing this whole worldly system attacking the people of God. Seeking to completely silence them forever. This is the picture that we see. And I think we have to understand that because that is what God has called his people to do. I'm protecting you. I've called you to witness. It's going to be costly. It's ultimately going to lead to a place where you will witness to the end. You will suffer along the way. There will be this coming time where one will come and seek to totally annihilate the church. And you're looking at this and say, are there any other video clips? Give me another one, man. Like, I need some more here. Don't stop there. That's what I'm saying. Like, let's make sure that we don't stop at this point. Let's keep going here. And read just a little bit more. Because in the moment that you're thinking all hope is lost, guess what? Well, let's just stop one more thing. You just, have you just stopped and considered just for a moment how the, how the world is throwing a party? Their greatest celebration is to see the church destroyed. That is so amazing. Like as when the church rightly witnesses, certainly some will come to faith, but many will want to stamp it out forever. They will be yelling, crucify that church. So the fourth clip in verses 11 through 13, you see the church's final reward. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. You know, notice the temporary nature of this three and a half days sounds something like what happened with Jesus. You would think he's done. He's over. It's horrible. I can't believe it. And all of a sudden, what happens? He comes up from the grave. He's resurrected. What did we say? Jesus people walk through this time of suffering. It looks like they're completely annihilated. And then they burst forth from the grave. It's resurrection. It's what the church has promised. It's the hope that they have. This passage speaks back to Ezekiel 37, where God has Ezekiel prophesy over dry bones. He speaks over them in this vast multitude of them, and they, those dry bones, they come to life. It's a reminder of that. It's a fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in Israel is now happening with the church. And they went up into the cloud and the world sees it. 
I think this is the what some people would say. Well, I think there's a rapture before all this. No, I think this this is the rapture. Jesus is calling up his people and he's coming back. This is the picture, I believe, on display in this moment. This is the career of the church. The church is called by God. God says, you're secure. He says, go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You will endure great trouble. You will follow in the steps of the master. He endured trouble. You will endure trouble. You go out and preach the gospel to the nations. And as you go and preach, know this, trouble's coming. They will try to hunt you down. But even if they kill your body, don't be afraid because guess who has the last word? I do. And I will raise you up on the last day. You notice it says at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This idea of them giving glory to the God of heaven, it seems to me, fit within the context of the text all the way through the revelation. When you see someone coming to this place, they are coming in repentance and faith. They are watching this on display. People are believing the gospel as a result of the testimony of the witnesses of Christ. And that's the way it happens. All the way through, we see that they're going to, I believe, some will come in repentance and faith. At the very end. So, do you like your career? God's given you a career. He's given you a job. It's not an easy job. It's a wonderful job, but it's not an easy job. But you did see the disciples, remember when they suffered after Jesus ascended to heaven and sent them out to witness, and they, they just glorified God because they've been able to suffer for the sake of Christ? They treasured that, that they had been considered worthy to be able to experience that opportunity of identifying with their Savior in His suffering. And what were they holding on to? That this is not the end. Suffering in the present is not the end for His people. There is a glory that Paul says so transcends this present age, it will swallow up whatever suffering you face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Let us live in light of it. Let us understand it and grasp it in glory in this picture that we are able to identify with our Savior, that we've been kept by him, that we will serve him as witnesses, that we will suffer like him, that we will be raised with him. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand with me at this time.